Of all the ways I could introduce you to me, the podcast, I thought, why don't I just invite you into this space to overhear a conversation between me and the human I'm fighting to become. In this episode, you'll be in a therapy session with me. I wanna tell you what really happened to me and my family. And even though I have explanations like we all do, and could talk through some of the fragile moments in my childhood and adulthood, I've really come to discover the things I bury so deep inside of myself. How's your weekend? My weekend was good. How was your weekend? It was, it was exhausting, unexpectedly. I was in New York working last week. Mm-hmm. And Friday, long trip, started there Tuesday and was headed home, um, got to the airport around 3.30, and there was delays, so they were like, got there. It's like, oh, your flight's delayed. In New York? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Departing at seven now. Oh. Seven rolled into nine. Oh. Nine rolled into 11, and then they canceled the flight around like 9.40. Said I've been called in the Delta help desk. Uh, you know the platform line. <laughs> <laughs> The fancy books, like, Did they put you up? <laughs> I was like, you got to hook me up. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, Mr. Son, the best we can do is try to get you home Saturday evening. Because essentially the, the flights had actually been canceled so much that people just started rebooking. So rebooking is just harder. Was it the thunderstorms? Thunderstorms, yeah. 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 And I jetted out of... When they canceled at 9.40, I came out of the terminal, went back to the check-in line. I was like, yo, give me a red coat, supervisor. Got Delta line on the phone. I was like, you got to get me home tonight. I've got podcasts to record in the morning, and I am exhausted. What would you do this weekend? I went to the Atlanta United game, which was highly unsatisfying because Toronto tied them in the last 60 seconds of the game. So it was a ended at a two-all tie. So it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. So what happens in the tie? You don't nothing. You go home. It's a tie. Very unsatisfying. Well, they don't have the like penalty. What is it called? The overtime no, kicks. Back, back in the back in the day when I used to watch uh, North American soccer, they'd go into overtime and they do a, a yeah. short session. But the Major League Soccer doesn't do that. So, so like y'all just tired. You done. You done. Go home. Go yeah. Home. No OT. No. So they're following you know European rules and. But I hear it's pretty like. Oh, it's fun. Forty-five thousand people at this soccer game. Yeah. That was actually very encouraging. When I first started searching for a therapist, some of you might have done this too, I jotted down a couple of things that would keep me coming back and using this for real. Black, spiritual, woke to the issues of my people, and was close enough that I could walk or take a quick Lyft or Uber in this disrespectful Atlanta traffic. All of those things were on the list. That list was my commitment to myself because after a travel delay like this one, I would have easily canceled. But I got up and brought my black ass to the sofa so I can go back out here and deal with life. What's on the agenda for today? I... Um... We'll go through, you know, I... 
family front. Is, okay. So I was like, okay, let me, how do I put my family on a, I've been thinking about how do I put my family on like a, a payment cycle to where it's, before it was like, come to me when there's a need. And I found that, you know, sort of stressful. Because mm -hmm. if... You can't plan for it. Can't plan for it. Mm -hmm. um, but then I was like, okay, I got a fun. So I was just like, I can lower the stress because when they call, I can do this. But I was like, you know what? Why don't we just sit down, talk about the monthly allotment you get, and just think about how do I spread that between both my mom and Nikki, with my mom getting the most. So I'm just like, okay, $1,200, how do I, how do I get this to them? So essentially every check on the, I get paid every two weeks. And so when I started doing it, it's just like on those payment cycles, just giving them money. And I called my mom, I was like, hey, I'm dropping a deposit. I was like, how's your account? And she's like, oh, it's negative. Mm -hmm. No, I'm like, oh, how much? It was $200 this time. So I was like, okay. I said, I'm about to put some money in there. And so this upcoming Friday when I get paid, <clears throat> I'll do the same thing, but it'll just be for Nikki just to make sure that she has, you know, what she needs. I think she, um, I think she feels the most guilt because she's married. Mm -hmm. But I was trying to tell her like, even though you're married and you have two incomes, the question is, do you live in poverty or not? Mm -hmm. It's like, especially both of them have fixed incomes because they had get like 80 to 100% medical disability from the military. Nikki and her husband. Yeah. Yeah. And can you actually survive off what you get? And, you know, sometimes you can't because, you know, you have a daughter in school who wants to be in cheerleading. Brownies or, yeah. Life. Right. You have needs. Life that costs money. <laughs> you yeah. got desires. Yeah. Like, you know, and so I was telling her, I was just like, she was crying. I was like, yo, you, this is, I, I can do more and I have more. And doing more in this way does not actually hurt me. It actually sets me up because giving, you know, you know, as a patriarch of a family, this is my job. Were there people that helped your mom and you and Nikki when you were growing up? Yeah, I think of the, there was, I think my mom was probably and, and one or two of her brothers were very just stable. Mm -hmm. And stable means like they will consistently have a house. My mom will consistently keep a job and know that job is probably just at or above minimum wage. Whenever life happened, which means, you know, um, there wasn't enough money to pay the bills, food at the end of the month was running out, some people would come around and actually help you know, get us to the next like payment, mm -hmm. you know, and you could see because people would, <laughs> black folks fold up the money. 
and toss it in the hand. It's like a love offering, like this thing. Nice. But it was, but it was just like, and, and sometimes you, and sometimes that wouldn't happen. Sometimes it was just like, what's in the, what's in the cabinet? How do you got to make do? Mm -hmm. um, but I think my mom's role in the family was much more, she was the one doing that. Because how do you actually, I think she felt a level of guilt herself in terms of look at my, look at what we have, even though it's not a whole lot, we have some. And then when you look around us, like our cousins sometimes didn't have that. They had less. Mm -hmm. They had less, mm -hmm. you know. And every meal, when I went back and looked at this, Kelly, I was like, why? I was writing down, like, what are, what are some of the lessons I learned from living in poverty? And then one of them was, is like, it's always this impermanence. Nothing is really yours. Anything can be taken away. The bottom can drop out. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was just like, me and my sister, we only wanted two things in our life. We wanted a room that was ours mm -hmm. because everybody's, there's somebody always living with you. And that's fun when you're like between two and seven. Yeah, and then it gets old. Then you're like, I want my own room. Yeah. And you wanted a family to where you could always, you, you never had to ask, um, do we have enough? Because they, the way that we had to do this was going back and looking at my mom and my Aunt Linda and all of how we lived, every day was a struggle. Like, I remember them saying, getting up, fixing the, the breakfast, and they're like, y'all, what are we gonna do about lunch? Mm -hmm. Meaning like, we got all the, 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 the kids over here, and it's the summer, there ain't no air conditioning in this house, we won't have nowhere to take them, somebody's gotta go to work, Somebody's got to do daycare, and we got to get to lunch. When we got to lunch, probably hot dogs and chips. People said, you know, okay, well, what are we going to do by dinner? It strikes me, too, how young you started paying attention to that. Yeah. You know, you didn't have the, the leisure of just assuming it would all be taken care of. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, is when you start asking for things and you see things, Especially this contrast around like when you, when you're in the projects, everybody's poor. So everybody has those corner store or like, you know, everything that you have is somehow shared in a way of, you can tell when someone has on Jordans or all those kinds of things. It's just like, oh wow, how you get that? Because look at how we live in. Mm -hmm. But when you go to, when we move close to my grandmother and you're in a suburban classroom, your life is amplified because in middle school, you start noticing the name brands, but by high school, definitely by middle school, you look at what their parents are driving and what their parents show up in versus what you um, are showing up in in terms of car and all that kind of stuff. We was in hoopties and I was like, y'all can never come pick me up loud cars i don't know if it was the radiator the exhaust it was just yes <laughs> all that <clears throat> um 
And when you would go to home and you'd be like, Mom, can I have this? You'd be like, North Face? No. Shh. She'd be like, you, you got to work. And it was clear, you know, it became very clear that when you ask and there was, you know, not enough um, money, you know, that would, that would happen. But I think what I've, what I've tried to do now is, you know, and I think some of what, you know, what we worked on is like going from this thing of just like, why couldn't my parents show up for me and realizing the systems that prevented them from doing that. And then now saying, sometimes you're the one. I sort of got my family into this situation. It was better than the other options, but I was only six when I orchestrated this abrupt shift. You see, we were living in Kingston Projects on the east side of Birmingham, Alabama. And it looked like, y'all, all of the scenes from New Jack City and the local news reports at the height of the crack epidemic. There was no way to turn it off. There was no way to make it stop. And the sense that you got was this was not a place where humans should even live. Every day felt like a week. Couldn't eat didn't sleep this is where i live you know monday through friday but on the weekend that changed i was at my grandmother's house she had a farm and i had been plotting to live closer to her but i couldn't leave lisa behind that's my girl that's my mom so about that plot typically in the mornings i would wake up and I would drag my feet and I would tell my mom, I'm not going. And we would have words back and forth until I was late to school and I would finally leave. But on this particular day, I had to do something that would permanently change the game for us. I threw away all my shoes. And after a month of standoffs, refusing to go to school, my mom and I, we sat on the edge of the bed and we looked at each other and we made a deal. Six months and we'd be out of the projects. That's what we decided. I counted down every day without realizing how this would change my family and us forever. We would have to pay more than the system would allow us to earn. That means that while we would be in a better neighborhood every month on everything, we would come up short. So my older sister, Nikki, who I, who I love, uh, had to remind me of how we had to prepare for school in the winter. The house was so cold, we put our clothes on under the cover, ran to the bathroom, brushed our teeth, and we got into the car because it was warmer than the house. Because it took the house so long to sort of warm up, and quite frankly, we couldn't afford it. There were moments of hard times and difficulty of living in poverty, and then there were moments when life just planted us in despair. One day I showed up at the hospital. My mom had been in an accident because someone had left a car parked in the fast lane and she and her then ex-husband hit the car head on. My mom flung through the windshield, breaking her hip, her pelvis bone, the seatbelt saving her from being ejected. And I remember standing at UAB hospital at the entrance 
looking at the blood on my mom's forehead from the lacerations across her face that were now sort of exposed. I remember y'all seeing this machine that was moving my mom's leg up and down and about from her knee all the way up to her thigh were staples that were running along her hip that had put her flesh back together. A couple of days later, I remember returning to school and I overheard some teachers and some counselors at my new white suburban school discussing the matter amongst themselves. And they said this, he might be an orphan. His mom might not make it. And you know his father left them in the projects. And the only thing that I could imagine was being in this world without a parent, without my mom. And so Nikki and I took matters in our own hands as we have done since we were six, seven years old. We would come home from school after my mom had been released and we turned our house into a rehab. After normal days of being in the fourth grade, I would grab some tweezers and some tissues and pick the glass out of my mom's face, reminding her that she's the most beautiful woman I've ever met while Nikki was exercising her leg back and forth to help her regain strength because we had no money for anything else. And when you're living it, you don't even realize how you have been forced to carry so much unnecessary things. But here's what we had to learn. Even though we were planted in despair, we had to learn how to bloom. So here's what we knew to do at that time. Y'all know how it is. You go through something hard and traumatic and you create, you know, unconscious mantras around it. Everything will be all right, y'all. Don't cry. God's not going to put more on us than we can bear. But the system sure would. These weren't just words. They were shovels that there was nothing to do with the pile of tragedy. So we packed it all away. We were becoming the situations that were happening to us. It wasn't scarcity. Now we had to live within a, a very painful existence that just would not stop. My mom couldn't deal with all of this alone. So you're about to see how our family structure rearranged itself to match our existence. Each of us supplementing each other learning how to deal with the blowback of each situation. Yeah, and what are the strengths that I developed as a result of these experiences? Yeah. I mean, some of the things you and I have talked about is you, you had a really unique perspective when you were going through these things it, in the sense of, okay, I want different. What, what, what am I going to do about it? What you going to do? Yeah. I think that's what, you know... So I'm, I'm happy for Nikki because, you know, the conversation we had and I was like, you know, Nikki, you can grieve one or two ways. You know, you can grieve like life is over, the best thing had, has happened to me. And that was my military career. Or you can grieve in saying that was a big thing, but literally what God has is bigger. The next day she did register for school. Yay. 
Yep, and she's like, oh, I'm gonna go to Birmingham Southern. And she's gonna start in February. She's like, I need some time to like get my life and transition. And... Does she know what she wants to study? Yeah, she's gonna do, she's a writer. She's, you know, she's been helping me on the, with my book. Um, and she wants to do English major and um, theater production. Fun. Because she grew up and she, she reminded me that she was like, you remember what I wanted to be when I was little? I was like, I don't know. She was like, mom would always put me in the lead roles of the plays. And I was like, that's right. Um, so I think that, you know, mostly it's about, you know, you, you served your country. I don't know. I think there's this thing around, like, her ability to see that she has fought for her country and she's got to learn how to fight for Nikki. What's now? What's next? With the same level of passion and vigor to say mm -hmm. that you have to put all of that which you were projecting on um, the country to to yourself and dang, I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but. <sighs> well, I think it's often easier for us to devote our passion to something other than ourselves. You know, we put, we put other people, we put God, we put country, and we don't give ourselves permission to honor the vessel and to take care of what we need in order to feel good and give back. Yeah, and there's this, our relationship is dynamic in the way of, um, the both brother and father role. So when I see her, I'm like, in, in one dimension, I'm like, oh, my sister's having a bad stretch here. Mm -hmm. It's been a bad two years, you know. But I also look at her and says, she's not, when Nikki comes to me, she's not asking for a brother to show up. She's asking to be taken care of in ways that, you know, we have agreed, you know, this is the role you can play. I. So what comes up for you? I, what, what is this feeling? Be more attentive to her, you know, and it is both a longing and a fear okay. of her to, to, to see her own self-worth. Okay. You know, to get her back on, it is not actually to get her out of the, just getting her out of the, the, the muck she's in. It's about what do you learn by getting yourself out and saying like, I can't save you. Yeah. Like your brother, can't save you. Even if I, even as I play a, a fatherly role to you, she has to be able to learn that your own reliance and faith in yourself can move you. Well, and I wonder if some of this, it, the, the emotion is that awareness that I can't do this for her. Yeah. And we have no guarantee that somebody will do it for themselves. Yeah. And that, that, that the longing and the fear. Yeah. 
We can, yeah. we can point the way, we can talk about it, we can model it, but they have to have the faith that that door is open to them. Yeah. My uncles would come by the projects to check on us, but really, y'all, they were there to get my mom's plate because there's nothing like a black woman cooking in the South. Everything's made from scratch. And they would say to me, Tony, you're the man of the house. And for a long time, that meant being the last one up so I could lock up the house, opening up doors for my mom, making sure that they were taken care of. But at some point early on, I didn't have time to be my mom's son anymore. I had to step up. In the next set of doors, I want to show you how I became the patriarch of my family at a very, very young age. I was in middle school and the law then was if you were 15 with a work permit, you can still get your coins. And so I had applied at this local chicken shop right down the street from my middle school called Guthrie's. And they were dragging their feet, had applied. Everything was manual back then. It had been two weeks. So I hit up the manager and said, hey, I saw your number on my caller ID. I believe the manager was calling to give me the job immediately. <laughs> they were like, yeah, he was going to call you. The next day, I was in a commercial kitchen dropping frozen pre-breaded chicken fingers in hot grease. And this is the start of me financially supporting my family at 15 years old. I applied that finesse to my next gig in politics. It was only about 40 or so black kids in my high school freshman class of about, I say about 500 or so students. And so I ran for class president and this is one of the most coveted positions in not only this school, but in this white suburban community. And you know, the black kids, we had a meeting. And they like, you know your light-skinned ass, they're not about to give you that. And they were right. So we actually came up with a campaign that took it. I actually won class president all four years, which meant I was a black boy in a white context learning how to make... 40 black kids equal to white kids on their own turf. I was managing the white pushback from parents who raised questions to teachers that wanted me to stay in my place. Working in this position meant working across lines of not only difference, but sort of the racial backlash that says, stay in your place. And everything I was learning about whiteness at school, I was taking back home to my mom, helping her get raises on her jobs without even realizing it. Here's how I did it. My mom was the first one at work. She was the last one. And she would been skipped for many promotions and pay raises like many black women in the South. So we sat down and we looked at how much she made. We updated her resume. We practiced interview questions. I had already participated in multi-round interview processes in variety of roles in high school. So I was able to coach my mom up. She landed new jobs. She got raises. Then we had to work on negotiating her treatment in the workplace. I became my mom's mentor, her coach, and at times it was messy trying to be both her son and the one that was actually trying to put us on a financial path of security. That meant at times I would disagree with her 
decisions. And that caused tension and some bling. By the time I was in the 11th grade, I was making more money than my mom and the adults that were around me. So there were real issues that emerged because of the lack of resources that we were all trying to figure out how to do together. Because I couldn't see the system and what my mom was truly entangled in, I blamed my mom for not having what my white kids and my black middle class friends had. I wouldn't let anybody, not anybody, but a couple of kids even visit my home because I was so ashamed. But coming into this door and doing the work of what I had to carry, I was able to see my mom in a whole new light. My mom was giving a beautiful performance in a difficult story. Gotta take some, gotta take some action. And just figuring out my role in that. Um, but in, nevertheless, I'm, I'm excited for her. Um, um, and then Kelsey, uh, you know, I need to just, once I get out of this stretch of just like production for the company and it, it gets stable, I need to like bring him. He's, there is no, Kelsey doesn't operate on any kind of psycho. Kelsey's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling in the middle of the day. He was like, bro, I need some pizza. I haven't eaten all day. Frantic. I'm in some city driving to a meeting. I'm like, I can't stop what I'm doing. And I was like, let's go to a new plan. Let's, I'm going to give you 24 hours. Think about the next day and what you need, and do you need help, and then you need to bring me in. <clears throat> and he was like, okay, yeah, but I need some pizza right now. So I just texted him my, um, my uh, credit card number. So I've got, some, I've got some work to do there. Yeah, so what's the downside of that? Not, not for you. You can afford a pizza, but for Kelsey. Um, the downside by way of? Of his ability to call you in the middle of the day and say, I'm hungry, I need pizza, and have it show up. Oh, it's a valet service. In a way. So what's the, I mean, I could go with, you want to cut the crust off my peanut butter and jelly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just like. What's the problem for him, though? I mean, you know. I, I think the, the thing about Kelsey is, is a contrast to how we lived. Right. We grew up struggling and worrying, and, but the struggle and worry produced the hustle. That. But. For Kelsey, we just splurged on, on brother. I mean, he was, he was loved, he was cared for, and then he's a wonderful singer. And I don't know, what, how do you strike the balance? I don't have kids, but I'm like, how do you strike the balance between what you deserve versus what you earn? Like, you gotta earn some stuff. Everything cannot be given to you. And I just think he lives in a world <clears throat> now, he was going to college, but now he lives in a world where it's just, he's trying to figure himself out, both 
career-wise, both sexually, with all of these things, and more than just the superficial things, you really need a place where you can grow and you can thrive, where there's this, I left home and I got to step up, and in stepping up, there's going to be some fumbles, and my family can support me. And I don't think he's, he's had that yet. Um, and so just, you know, I think there is something about showing up as a brother versus actually having these transactions of, hey, I need, and then going, because I'm so busy, um, being present. It is, in any relationship, you gotta be present. Um, so is there a way to be present that still allows him to learn the hustle, to learn that if I need pizza, I, I, I've got it in me, I can figure this out. Oh yeah, there's gotta be a way to do that. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'm just like, but you know, you, you tried so much, so many things, you like, yeah, you that's tried to know, I can't do it. You know, and I did that for a while, and I'm just like, I, you know, I, I'm just like, let me just give him pizza because I want him to be safe. You know, your your mind goes to both accountability right. to develop your hustle, but also I don't ever want you to be able to actually, you're out here doing things or you, you are led to do things that compromise who you are for so over fear. some pizza. So oh, there's definitely. fear. Because the world is a place where, when you're going through things and you can't think clearly, you gotta learn. You gotta learn. You know, logically think about things. You know, you give in. You start lowering the bar. Yeah, because that's a double edge. Because a part of what you're saying is, can I trust him to make a sound decision for himself? For yeah, exactly. Does for he himself. Does know how to recognize who he is and, and and what he's valuable to say? I can struggle but also maintain who I am. Right. Because the struggle will sometimes turn you into another person because it lowers your value. It makes you feel like you're not anything, like you ain't shit. And some of what I hear for you as someone who loves him, who loves your family, is how do I, how do I provide the support? How do I provide the backdrop, but still allow him to learn those to fail where he needs to, to make those mistakes, yeah. to recognize that it's more valuable to hustle and to hold your integrity right. than to compromise your integrity or to just let somebody hand it to you. Exactly, exactly. The tension of knowing when to step up or back as a young patriarch was becoming more complicated for me as I went into my teenage years. I thought in my mind we would all make it out together, each of us having this sort of financial plan to increase our, our well-being. So for stretches of time, y'all, we would save up and it would work. And then something in life would happen that would throw us completely off of our plan. Like this, one random day, I believe I was in the 11th grade, I came home from school one day to find out all of the electrical wiring in our home had went out. You know, earlier I mentioned the accident that my mom was in. We got a settlement. And as a part of that settlement, we got this fixer-up house that's reminiscent of the shacks that are in the color purple. But the incentive was it came with 25 acres of land. So we lived in an inhabitable, raggedy shack 
but we made it our home. But it required a lot of work and maintenance, even though we didn't have a house note. So we needed nearly $2,000, which back then felt like $10,000. And you know who they asked for? Me. I was a junior in high school, and Nikki, my sister, had found a stack of chicks in one of my drawers. I had saved nearly $10,000 from the time I had started working. And now everyone, not, not just in my house, but everyone in my family knew what I was sitting on. So my mom and I had a discussion and she made the appeal, you know, you live here, we need the money. And I was not only hesitant to do that, I had plans for my money. And so my thought process was two working adults, my mom was married at the time, no mortgage. They should have or could have that money. So we went back and forth. And it escalated to the point where I had to leave the house because we couldn't come to a mutual agreement. In the end, I did not pay for that. I supported my mom as best I could to actually find the means to do it. And it was only a couple of months later that I was on a used car lot selecting something that I could use as transportation to get back and forth that came with monthly payments. 11th grade, working two jobs, a monthly payment. I felt the pressure. And then my mom said it. If you need something, I can't help you, son. You're not gonna believe this, but it's true. It was only four months later that I showed up at a doctor's office with what I believe was a sprained back after working in fast food. And I was stressed out about that situation, having a new car note. And the doctor was like, you mentioned during our prognosis that your heart was beating fast. So let me do an EKG. So after waiting for 45 minutes, a team of doctors stormed through the hall and said, you have a serious heart disease. And this is really what our life amounted to. It was the accumulation of event after event after event with no space and gaps to breathe that bared down not only on the individuals, but the relationships that tried to actually connect us and sustain us. We ourselves were afraid. Our relationships were afraid. We were in a constant state of trying to survive and trauma. And I had to finally say, can I save them and me too? I think that's one reason why I often, this weekend, I was like, Antonio Saunders, I don't think of, I thought a vacation would fix this level of tiredness, but it's not. I think we talked about last week, how you turn like the, your, your own evolution of going from like grapes to wine or from olives to oil, like. Right, right. This is more of a process of becoming because even after vacation, vacation allows you to like step back from the world, but vacation doesn't transform you. And I just think like for me, it's like the process that I'm in right now is forcing me to actually become, you know, a better, more authentic version of myself. 
I'd say that's the process you've been on for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why I work so hard is not so I can, you know, every, every, I think every guy who, you know, grows up in the hood dreams of making his mom's house one that she can come home and, and the mortgage is paid. You got to get mama out the hood and you got to get your family around you to a, a place where they're not living in survival below Maslow's hierarchy of just needs. So um, security. There's a sense of security. Exactly. I'm safe. It's paid for. Yep. We are functional. Um, and I think my own hustle, you know, is uh, it's really right now it's just like, oh my God, this is a lot. You know, you're in it and it's exciting. And then I think I'm 80% like I am excited. And there's this 20% that's just like where you give your, when you start thinking about how people are going to respond to you because I realize now that, you know, I did approach this like art, like I am not going to compromise anything for anybody. I am about to be 100% Antonio Saunders. Which is incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. When, when we do that, when we turn off the, crit, the inner critic and say, okay, I'm not going to edit this. I'm going to let myself be myself and trust that that's a good thing. Yep. It also means here I am. I'm putting myself out there to be seen Yeah. in a way that's really scary. It is. And I mean, this is the place where I come to learn how to I thought the the most pressure in life was learning how to change the world, but I think the the hardest thing in life is fighting for your own freedom. Like you being free. You know, cuz it is easier to be out here and be like helping people get free and then you actually remain tethered to the things that hold on to you. And I think I think, for example, one thing is there are several shows where I was like, I've got to choose to be able to have a very courageous conversation. And one of those shows is God is Democrat. There's mm -hmm. A and B. There's God is Republican, God is Democrat. Now, God is Republican. These white liberals out here who love God, who made Jesus a white man. What's with that? You know, what's with your people, <laughs> Kelly? <laughs> I don't know. If I knew that, I'd be a very rich woman. <laughs> I'm like, man. Um, but the the epiphany of the epiphany of that, you know, those were good conversations because you know you're having a pastor, you know, say, you know, all people can come serve, and I was like. You're telling people they can come serve. What's the irony of you choosing to see people never, God never stop loving? Yeah. You know, 
and that long pause of like how we've created an institution. And so when I got onto the other side of this, this show, God is Democrat, you know, I'm talking to my college pastor, who was instrumental in, in my life, probably this was the time where Nikki had been raped. Sophomore year, Nikki tells me she's been raped by my mom's then um, husband. And the story in the book now is just sort of like me and Kelsey went through the house and I just got the garbage bags, room by room, everything that was in there. And so my schedule for college was, am I gonna finish? And so what I was doing was going home on the weekends, getting Nikki and mom and Kelsey on Friday, coming to church with me on Sunday and I'm taking them back. And it was sort of like, that was our therapy. Mm -hmm. Like we couldn't get to this, mm -hmm. but I was like, we gotta get to the altar every week, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a level of, we're not gonna probably fully, you're not gonna have the conversations. Everybody's very, really busy. But one thing we can do is we can process the pain together. And so Bishop Smith was like, he was giving us those sermons that were just getting us through. And so I was like, you know what? I need to know if I even wanna be a minister because my mom, my grandmother told me I'd, I'd be one. So I was like, God, if you want me to do this, I want the behind the scenes. So I started working for him. And, you know, working in a ministry and, and serving parishioners and learning how a pastor tends to people's needs. We're on the podcast and we can, we, um, you know, black men who, you know, who think about our faith tied up with justice can easily critique what the white church does and does not do. And there's a point in this, Kelly, where we talk about, well, the black church doesn't see women out of their own patriarchy, and they definitely don't see LGBTQ folks. And now I'm like, oh goodness, you're inserting yourself into your podcast in a way that now those who have speculated will now know. Mm -hmm. Those who <laughs> um, don't know now know. And you're telling the world this is who you are and giving them a way to actually come to an understanding of you, but also talk about you and your sexuality in ways that they don't know the full story about you. Which is in a way a, a way of being a, a public figure that mm -hmm. you you can you can choose which of your identity markers you hold up and hold back. Mm -hmm. And now let me take you into one of the darkest rooms in my life. I was sitting on the bench in the middle of campus. I could see the registrar's office, the same place my mom and I came down to. Uh, register for financial aid. I was about to go tell them that I needed to drop out of school because of what happened um, leading up the weekend before. 
So let's sort of rewind a little bit here. The previous weekend, I was back home um, on the weekend. Sometimes I would go and just drive 45 minutes up to Birmingham to visit my family. And by now, I was, of course, out of school. Nikki had been out of school for two years and trying to figure out her way. And during that course, we had sort of grown apart. She had been telling me for months, though, that we needed to sit down and talk, but we both had put it off. So I finally picked her up. We went down Finley Boulevard to a friend's house, grabbed some food, and we started having a conversation as I entered the freeway. Nikki began to tell the story, and at some point, I noticed that she stopped. I looked over, and she was struggling to breathe. So I clenched her shirt, and I started to shake her, and the car started to swerve, and I was like, Nikki, calm down. What happened? And this is really all I remember. One night, he, and then she went on. I don't remember, but I know that. And then she ended with, and I blame myself. And I really didn't need to finish any of those things to know that my sister had been compromised by my mom's then husband. I told my mom we had an emergency at the house and she needed to come home immediately. She and her then husband jumped out of the car. I locked my mom in the car with my sister so she could tell her what she had disclosed to me. And then I picked up something. I don't know what it was, if it was a brick or... Or, or anything and I went over to him as he was backing away from the car and I looked him in his eye and I, his eyes and I said I know what you did and if you ever come back here I'll kill you I went into the house while my mom and sister were still locked in the car with my younger brother Kelsey and I just stood there contemplating what I should do so I went into the kitchen and grabbed some garbage bags and Kelsey and I went room to room opening up drawers and everything that was his, whether it was medicine bottles to pictures on walls to clothing, room to room was emptied until everything that was his was sitting on the curb by the mailbox. And later that day, my uncle came by as he heard the news and he handed me a gun to defend my mom, my sister and my family and of course, I didn't know how to use a gun. And we were all just sitting on the porch. And I went into the house and laid down and decided to drop out of college since my mom didn't have a job and I would have to work to support her. But we know that God always makes a way and I was able to find a solution that allowed me to stay in college but also pick up extra work to support my family. I was sitting there and I was talking to Bishop Smith and I was like, you know... It was, it was crazy to be in a ministry or have a relationship to a deity that says, why does God, why do you all want my gifts, but you can't hold my pain? What kind of, what kind of translation of God sees me for what I can bring to him, but can't see me for Who's, who he seemingly made for all me. of me, for, for, all of for me. the full integrated me, for me. How have you evolved in that over time? Like f you, you just said a minute ago, you know, there's a part of me that I can put forth, and the part of me that I ha have had to hold back. 
and my sense is that there has been a shift in the in the time that we've known each other. Yeah, definitely a shift, Kelly. Um, I think there is a a way that you do life where the first way you do life and your interpretation of anything is the lens that somebody gave you. Mm -hmm. So for so long, I was holding my grandmother's lens and my mom's lens for myself and God, to God. And both, I was, both how you saw God and how God saw, sees you. Right. Okay. And everybody, that first lens, mama, grandma, pastor is telling me, and that is, is that God loves you, but he hates the sin. So he doesn't like you. And so you go through life trying to actually pray fast and sort of like what the Velvet Rage says in terms of creating a false persona that is pleasing to people and pleasing to God, but you're actually having an internal conversation with yourself. This is for them, this is not for me. Yeah, that, that who I really am is not ever gonna be up to snuff. And so I'm gonna create this, this external beauty but that it isn't me. It isn't you. And there comes a point where those things begin. There's a new thing you can hold because I had met a friend, Jenny Oki, who she was the one that was in the, um, remember I told you last, uh, last week in the um, LA Trader Joe's? Mm -hmm. um, she was held up in there. When I met her at Teach for America, she was like, oh, you're, you're queer. And, you know, your identity marker and how you've been socialized in America is to think of yourself as um, outside of the hegemonic norms of existence and this. And she just rattled it off. And I was like, yo, that's it. <laughs> yes. You, and I, you I see just, me. Yeah, I wanted, but what she did was, in one second, she did what everybody in this lens could not do. She saw me. Like, she saw all of me in a way that says, not only are you good, you're worthy. And now you have a responsibility to hold all of yourself. I think she did something else, too. She pulled back the camera, so instead of just seeing the mirror and seeing this is what God looks like, this is what I look like, she pulled it back and you saw that it was mirrors. Yeah. That the way I'm seeing myself, the way I'm seeing my relationship with God, the way I'm viewing that God might see me is a function of these mirrors. And now that I can see the mirrors more clearly, I can decide whether maybe there's a larger reality. Yeah. Maybe God's a little more complicated than that. The part of this that's crazy for me was that for the first time, someone was putting to language the experience I was having. I have been going through things and I had said to myself, and even as I would describe the bizarre stories of my life, I would just say, you know, we lived from crisis to crisis. My life was hard, but it was way more than that. Jenny Oki was able to help me 
put language to it and saw a part of me that I'd left behind all those years. And now I had to make a choice. And I had to ask myself some deep, reflective questions. What parts of me did I want to bring or leave behind? Who decided who I would become? What reality allowed them to believe they could shape and define who I am? What didn't they know about me that caused them to get me wrong in their own heads? These were the questions about my identity and my family and my society that I now had to reconcile based off not just who I wanted to become, but the little boy inside of me that was still hurting that I needed to go back and heal. There's this exercise that you have to do is you have to go back to your lens and actually say that there's a value system in there that both has benefits mm -hmm. and bondage. Yeah. And you got to take away the bondage of how people actually thought about you and gave you you. And then you rebuild another you, which I think this is, you know, our conversations has actually led to, you know, I was like, am I going to come to therapy and get this, like, Scientology view of myself and it's going to be something crazy? Or is it going to be really grounded? And, and I have found that it's grounded in this thing around, like, you have to actually go to God and understand him for yourself. And the conversation now that I can wait is that my conversation with God is held higher than my pastor's message and people's interpretation of me because now I know how God sounds versus how my pastor and all these other voices sound because my pastor is a voice and interpretation of God, but he is also responding to the culture mm -hmm. and to a business. Mm -hmm. Whereas when God is talking to Antonio, there are no institutions and people that sit between us. There's just a relationship that's in that. Um, and I just think that's the, that's just the way of life now. Uh, and so I, I, I've been trying to hold that in, and maybe that's I haven't had that conversation with God around like, oh boy, this is about to be another level of, I think, and the, the tension will always be is that even though you hold another lens, the people who you value the most, you still want them to validate you. It yeah. was incredibly yeah. interesting to have the conversation with Bishop Smith and to, for him to say, I do believe the church is going to come along. And my job is not to actually, God decides if he wants to change people, if he wants to change them for whatever reasons. But my job is to actually be able to love and provide a space for people. And his ability to go back and say, you know, I go went back to those people and to my church and repented for some of the messages that he had, he had preached. Um, and I wonder, like, I'm Antonio, and that's what I want to be. 
and Antonio is consistent, consists of lots of things. This is one aspect of me. Um, and how to actually balance all of it out versus over-dialing or under-dialing of it, but situating it as sort of like, this is a sense of, this is a, a way, in, a part of who I am, but not trying to magnify it or deny it in any kind of way. So what was it like for you to have somebody that you have loved and respected for many years acknowledge that part of you not as not as something to be eliminated but as an integral part of how you were created and and to and to acknowledge his own sort of human awareness that we human beings were part of the part of the miscommunication we were part of the problem here we did harm yeah I think that's, um, it's a relief. Yeah. Because the, you know, I could have, you know, I held it together in a way of just like, <laughs> in that moment, I'm just like, let me just forget about the audience. There's something you need. And I had to be both, it might, you know, say like, you need to have another conversation, but it's like, you want to go in more and be like, well, why was this this way? So it, you know, it prompts them wise, but it also said to me that everybody, nobody has a monopoly on the truth. One. One, yes. That's the big thing. Yes. And nobody, like, the mystery of life that no one can actually tell us is how we got here. And definitively who God is um, and his expansiveness. Though we have from ourselves, from nature, and from our experiences, some conclusions that we draw. God has to come to you and be able to do that work with you. Um, and not to actually loan that to anybody. Like, it's not your job to, I'm not relying on anyone else to formulate the answers of who Antonio is. Well, and I think when we start to feel that we are holding a monopoly on the truth, in that moment we are starting to get ourselves in trouble. Yeah. Because my truth isn't going to be your truth. I mean, there might be a piece of it that's shared, you know, the piece that's coming down to both of us that's, that's pure, but I'm filtering it and you're filtering it. And when I start to feel righteous, like, no, no, I've, I've got the right answer. Exactly. You know, danger, <laughs> danger, right. danger. And it was this thing around like, it's right, who's getting in and who's not getting in? And the years of how long you hated yourself. Yeah. Like how long you had to carry this thing in, in you that you thought was vile while you actually looked to others outside of yourself and held them up as the model for who you should be. And the toxicity that was in, you know, male bodiness. And, and you're trying to continually sort of um, get rid of something that is actually a, a value to you. Um, and I think about me being able to do this in my late 20s, but the generations before me that were denied all of it, you know, who they themselves had to 
stand before people and talk against themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, this is wrong, and then go home at night and actually say, but why do I still feel this way? Mm -hmm. And more than a feeling, why do I exist this way? Yeah, why am I this way? Yeah. um, But I think the thing that is encouraging about it is being able to come to a, a space of saying, um, Antonio, your work doesn't loan it out anymore. This is solely on you. And that I always said, Kelly, one of my core values is operating with integrity. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting here and I'm talking to the voice and he was like, if you can't be all of you all the time, you do not operate with integrity. Like if you can't go into a room, regardless of who's in there and be one person all the time, you will continue to renegotiate yourself, repackaging yourself. I think that's a real dilemma because you and I have talked before about that there are legitimate safety concerns. You know, there are places and times where if we show up totally and completely ourselves, we're we're putting life and limit risk. Oh, yeah. And so there's that balance between how do I hold integrity and how do I hold safety? And so, you know, one of the things I observe is people can be really hard on themselves around, I want to be here, I want to be here in integrity. But I think we have to honor that safety has a place and that sometimes we make choices. You and I talked last week about love and fear and you know, wanting to stay in a position where we're making decisions out of love and not out of fear. But fear is a survival mechanism. Yeah. And I think there are times when we have to look at it and say, okay, is the thing that's silencing my voice in this moment a basic survival yeah. question. And, and just to have compassion for ourselves, we may ultimately choose to speak up, but that fear has function. And is this space safe for me? Is this space safe? Yes. And knowing does this space create exclusion or inclusion in the ways that I can actually be me, then can say, I'm not showing up in a renegotiated space, but I actually can determine how I can engage in a way that still actually sees and and honors Antonio. Um, So when you're talking about your bishop, you could move further into, into love because at the core there is this sense of safety. But I do think that there are some spaces where that is not going to happen, you know, where the other person doesn't care who we are. They they want to they want to be in a position, a position of power, superiority, of whatever it is. And so they're not gonna respond the way somebody they're not gonna respond with integrity integrity to integrity. Right. Oh, I get it. I mean, that's the, the journey of being black, too. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, that you go into a space and you like, <laughs> there's this, as I was picture on, a, I don't know, one of my friends posted it, and it had the real me, my resume, and when I'm in the work office. <laughs> and it went from progressively brown to white. Because you got to, like, change it up. Mm -hmm. um, but just also just knowing that being authentic, you know. And you can tell, you know, this is why you have to learn, sort of, like, see people for who they are and protect who you are and all those kinds of things. So, nevertheless, I think I'm excited. Just nervous. I know why Jill Scott says I'm sensitive about my ish, like, because it's putting us, putting you out there. But I also know that it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. That I appreciate this space of fear and uncertainty because it forces me actually to trust myself. Yes. And when you stand up to it, I think there is this feeling of you learn your own strength. You learn the limits of your courage. And I mean it in a positive way, the outer limits of your courage. Right. You and and people do rise up to meet you. Yeah. You know, you put yourself out there and they say thank you. I see you. The question is, how do you see you? Not just the things you know, but the things that are concealed that have defined all of us. Now you know why I come here every week. It's not just what's in each room, but what's buried or lost in each of these experiences in my life. Sometimes y'all wish it was as simple as taking the shovel and digging through the layers and salvaging what I didn't know was suppressed or there, but it's not. Each room has its own key, and I've learned its own set of tools that requires courage to say, yeah, I have become the things that have happened to me, but I get to decide who I am now. I had not yet come in contact with the true highest form of myself before all of these things happened to me. Within our community, we often speak of generational traumas in our life, the cycles we need to disrupt, and it takes daily acts to become more conscious of the things that have created who we are today. But I found in the depth of those experiences that it matches the depth of the work that we have to commit to. Otherwise, I've only learned to adapt to what I've been through and acknowledge it and that doesn't mean I know how to process it and to actualize it into a new possibility of who I can become. And that's the work I'm most interested in. And that's the work I've been committed to doing. Not just working on me, but building a new Antonio without compromise. Thank you for listening to one of the most personal episodes in The Promised Land. I'll talk to you all really, really soon. Thank you.